My name is Amanda Van Annen. Welcome to Beauty and the Beat. Join me and my co-hosts Betsy Zane and Sophia Brad as we pierce beyond the beauty myth and get face to face with reality. Highs and lows of fashion to the challenges of motherhood, the traumas of life, heartbreak of relationships gone wrong, and how to find purpose and discover your true authentic self. Hello and welcome to episode three, race. Why is this still a social construct? We decided to tackle this subject on the show due to the current events happening in the USA and around the world. The dreadful murder of George Floyd, a black man accused of forging a $20 check. It is 2020 and there is still a lot of racism around the world, be it known or unknown. However, we are living in a time unlike any other where people want real change to this deep-rooted issue. Racial classifications didn't always exist. Of course, there were always people in different parts of the world who had some physical traits in common, but they weren't forced into rigid categories. Discrimination and stereotypes existed, but they were based on country of origin, religion, or culture, not so-called scientific distinctions. With the 1776 edition of his book, On the Natural Variety of Mankind, German scientist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach is credited with creating one of the first race-based classifications. He decided on five categories, Caucasian, the white race, Mongolian, the yellow race, Malayan, the brown race, Ethiopian, the black race, and American, the red race. Americans bought into this idea too. Why was it so appealing? Americans of European descent invented race during the era of the American Revolution as a way of resolving the contradiction between a natural right to freedom and the fact of slavery. If whites were in their own category with innate differences backed by science, then that category could be deemed superior. As a result, they could justify their own rights and freedoms while enslaving, excluding, and otherwise mistreating people who had been placed in different racial categories. So the division of people into groups based on general geographical origins of their ancestors or descriptions of the way they look is the basis of a man-made strategy for making sense of treating some people better than others. That said, Obviously, I've given a little brief background of racism or race as a classification of people. I know we are all different in this world and we are all coexisting. One of the issues we wanted to talk about today on the show ever was why is racism still such a social construct? This is a social construct that is inbred in us since, you know, we were young. And even if there is a thing called race, why do people use it as a means of superiority? So that said, I want to ask the ladies here, what does racism mean to you? Okay, I think for me, racism means being made to feel like a subordinate. I think what it has done is it's being made to feel ashamed of my my skin color, my culture, you know, my race. Also, you know, it's made me feel, racism for me is made to feel unloved, unwanted, unheard. It invokes a lot of emotions because, you know, as a black woman living in society, you know, we are faced with so many situations that I think most people, you know, of different cultures 
are so unaware of. So sometimes when I explain that I go through certain situations, they're still shocked because for some, uh, for most, they feel because we are so-called tolerated that racism doesn't actually exist. Well, for me as a white person, having all the white privilege all my life, racism is still an alien term because I have never looked at a person in a racist, discriminating way. I come from a country that I actually haven't seen a person of a different race all the way till I was about 19 years old. So I grew up all my life having people looking like me. Obviously, there were some social differences, but I have never thought that a person with a different skin tone would be any sort of less of a human than I am, which I feel like the basis of racism is about, like determining your value, your worth, your freedom, your ability based on your skin color, which is absolutely just, to me as a person, absolutely, I just can't understand it. But I do see where it comes from and it actually I'm quite passionate about it because it makes me really sick to my stomach when people treat people with disrespect just because of the difference of their skin color like you have two legs I have two legs I have two like we biologically look the same the only difference that there is is a different shade And that should absolutely never be the point of where we value each other more. So even though I come from a country where everybody looked like me, I was raised to have respect towards people, whether they're older, younger, same age as me, like same, I don't know, social, I don't want to say cost, but like, you know what I mean? Like if they're like from a similar group of like in a similar status or whatever, even if they're higher or lower, it doesn't really matter. My grandparents have always told me to respect people no matter what their job is, no matter what circumstances they come from, no matter their disabilities. So I grew up in a very, very respectful household. Like everybody around me respected um, everyone else. And I'd never been put in a position where somebody would mean less to me because of their skin color. (sighs) Obviously, as an adult, seeing what happens around me and obviously moving from one country to another, living in America for a bit and then living in the UK, I have to say the racism in America is on like another level. For me, I have never understood why it got so... I don't want to say out of control, but it got so like strongly built into the, almost like into the nation as if God, I'm I'm just, it makes me really sad what I see now on news and I'm quite like emotional about it, but something really has to change now. As I said, to me, racism has never been a term because I didn't grow up in a way that I would be judging people based on their skin color. Yeah, Sophia, that's very, very interesting because You know, when I think of racism, what it means to me, there's a lot because I'm kind of like you, because growing up, I didn't really understand it because I really never saw it so much because, you know, I spent part of my life when I was very young in Africa. And when you live in a place like Africa, you have black people everywhere. Your driver's black, your president's black. It's like you, you know, you're isolated. But then saying that, you know, 
I was in England all the time. I was born in England. And also, I feel like sometimes when you're living in Africa and you ex exist in a socioeconomic class there, you're kind of not into the problem of what's going on in Europe or in America because you come over, you go for holidays or you go to school, boarding school, and then you go home. But does racism exist? As someone that is is from African origin, born in England, lived in England all my life, come to America, yes, racism does exist and it exists in different forms, which is like what Betsy said. And sometimes it's so stealth that people don't even understand it's going on because it's the things we say, the things we do, the reactions we make and the comments we make subconsciously. Now in America, as Sophia said, it's so ingrained in the system, obviously partly due to a history of slavery, but then you could say there was also slavery in the UK, but in the UK, it's not so ingrained as in America because in America, they then created it into law. So even after the abolition of slavery, they started arresting, for example, black men and destroyed black families. You know, they totally destroyed black families. They gave these people a hope. You know, these people became hopeless. There was no hope. So people said, oh, all black people were doing crimes or whatever. But, you know, when you take a people and you oppress them, they will fight against the system. So there is a lot of ingrained racism. And there's so many things that happened, you know, including them destroying black economies during the riots, the Tulsi riots that took place and they destroyed, you know, what was called the Black Wall Street at that time. Yes, I was about to say yes. Mm -hmm. A hundred years today, actually. Yes. So there was a lot of things that have happened through history. But, you know, on that said, you know, and we're talking about that, I want to say, when did you first become aware? I think Sophia's covered a bit of that. But Betsy, from your point of view, when did you first become aware of racism? For me, it was very, very early on. I remember, I think we've spoken about how, you know, I was bullied and that was part of the bullying. It was from people, you know, who were clearly, you know, racist and had grown up in families where you know, you could see that it had been ingrained into them from very, very, very early on, from the things that they said that, you know, it wasn't possible that it could come from, you know, such a young child. And I remember them saying things that, you know, I should go back to Africa. I remember NF being written on my front door and, and asking my parents, what does it mean? For me, it, it's always been there. It's, you know, like you say, in America, you know, it's very much there. But I think what happens here in the UK, yes, we experience it, but it's also indirect, you see. Even I can go, even as the same with my daughter, um, Olivia, you know, she's been experiencing situations at school and being the only black child in her class, I've actually had to move her from a school because she was ostracized. Now, people might say, well, it could be, you know, any other reason but race, but she was the only so-called black girl in her class. And she was the one that nobody wanted to play with. Nobody wanted to have play dates with. And she sat alone in the playground for three solid years to the point where it broke her. And in the end, I had to take her to see a psychologist. That's awful. You wouldn't believe that is going on in a school. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and people, that's what I'm saying. That when, when I say situations like this are happening, people don't realize to what extent that these ideals or from certain groups of people are having on our children, even on ourselves as human beings and as adults, because, you know, the daily challenges are so 
I mean, you know, what we have to go through mentally to prepare yourself for the day is what some people don't understand, you know, because you know that even if you're going into a workplace or applying for a job, you're going to have to prove yourself twice as hard or three times as hard just to be even to be seen or heard. So, I mean, this situation, I mean, we could, I mean, there's so much to discuss in this. Yeah, exactly. So, Sophia, why do you think the social construct exists? I suppose all of it comes from the times of slavery when black people were taken from their homes and made into slaves. And I think the easiest way to separate the higher caste in whatever way that they were thinking back in the days from the lower caste life from slaves was through to skin color. So that was easier for them to separate the two, which this whole concept is so alien to me because I've been looking on Instagram and seeing all the stories and all the posts that people post about it. And one thing really struck me is like, we are actually not born racist. Racism is something that is taught to us by your parents. And that's why you see what Betsy is experiencing with her lovely little girl that parents are teaching their kids to play with people that look different than them. Then to me, it's so alien. Like I was a big fan of Star Trek and things like that when everybody was like a different alien and things like that. For me, the concept of having people that are completely different, maybe different species even around you was like something appealing. I always would look for people for friendships that were slightly different than me because I felt like, okay, well, there's somebody that looks completely different than me. I'm instantly attracted to difference in people rather than the similarity in people because I want to know about different cultures. I want to know about different backgrounds and where people are from. And because I moved so much in my life, I always felt like I almost wanted to belong to the place where I moved to. But then as a place like London, it's so versatile. So there were so many different people around me. So I really wanted to get to know everybody that was surrounding me. So to answer your question, Amanda, I actually, I think the separation of it comes from back in the days in the 1600s when slavery started, just to separate the slaves from their masters and people in power. I think that's where it came from. And um, I just don't understand how could we carry this on for 400 years? I really cannot. It's interesting what you say, because one thing I want us to remember is slavery, is um, racism, sorry, is not only a black and white thing. In my introduction, I said, before the concept of race was created, people were segregated based on, you know, religion That's right. and where they came from and ethnicity not even ethnicity for say, just based on religion, where they came from, social construct, etc. So in those days, what could happen is you could be a black man born in England, very rich, and you wouldn't be discriminated again because there were different ways they were separating, you know, classes. It was based more on like religion, mm-hmm. just, you know, social different. economic background and all that type. It wasn't depending on the color of your skin. Now, Racism as a concept itself is now being described as a way to divide people based on race. But then there is also the issue Mm -hmm. that race is not something that can be defined. Like some people are multiracial, some people are biracial. So Mm -hmm. you're looking at them and you're describing and you're saying, like, 
if you have a child that's half white and half black, and I look at them and say, I'm discriminating against you because you're black, what is it in me that, you know, how do I know they're black? Because they could be white. So I'm basically using their skin color as a form of judgment and using their skin color to define them as a race, which is not necessarily the right thing because they're not black. Yes. And I think also picking up on what you were saying, Amanda, it was also, you know, they based it also on the features of the individuals. So they determined race by the features of each person and obviously with black people. So then they were able to take and put them into a category of their own. And this is where the race became something which separated everybody into their different groups. But then it became to a point where it was used to oppress a certain group of people. Yeah, because what we have to remember is in the early days, before even the transatlantic slavery started, when Europeans first hit Africa, they were trading with the Africans. They did not go there to just get slaves. The slavery thing started with Africans actually selling them their own slaves, and then the Europeans decided to take over. You know what I mean? And that's how this whole slavery things started. But slavery aside, today we are talking a lot about racism and we are trying to find out, you know, if this is a social construct and if it is a social construct, how do we change this and how do we move forward from this? So why do you think the social construct exists? And, you know, do you think like institutions help facilitate racism? Because I have my point of view on this, but I want to hear what the ladies have to say first. Well, I've watched a few documentaries there's this thing on Netflix called Explained and there was an episode on how black families earn so much less than white families and like that I think it's like a racial I'm not sure exactly what it was called but it was like a difference in like how much a family could afford and so on and I actually personally don't know how it is still possible in these days because we see so many very successful black businesses um, running right now, which a lot of us are super passionate about, like even the music industry. But with the music industry, it's obviously white owned, like the whole big thing. But a lot of it brings me back to the thing. It's like, I do not know I don't know how to explain this what and why this still exists. I just feel like everybody should own their own business and it shouldn't be white supremacists that are in charge of like big companies. Like even the music industry is run by white people and then they have like different types of influences underneath them, but the big bucks go to the white people. I don't understand why it's, why that still exists. And I can't give you an answer on that because I, I am not a person that's educated in this area. I've always been a person that was very fair. And if I find something unfair, I get really passionate and sad about it if it's unfair. And I don't know if I would be a good lawyer, but I would really want to fight a corner of someone's, like if, if something is fair, you know, like if I feel like my contribution would make it fair to someone, I would like to contribute with that. Yeah, I think um, racism as a social construct does exist. I think people try to pretend like it doesn't, but it does. Sophia made a good point about um, a lot of Black people earning lower wages. You have situations where companies would employ a Black person 
and they would not give them that pay rise or they would not give them the same kind of wage or salary they would pay a Caucasian person. And the person employing that person will say, I am not racist. It's not based on race. But you see, this thing is so in-depth that they don't even realize. Then you have companies that hardly have black people. I mean, you know, coming from the UK, I'll give you examples. You can look at television networks in England. How many black people do you see on television? Now you're seeing a lot more, maybe on series, but not presenters, not TV hosts, not, I mean, it took a long time. And before they'd have the one token, and if you were the one token, you felt the pressure. And then those type of things created black on black racism where the one token felt like they were better than the rest. And they were fearful that someone else could come and take their position. So they did not want anybody. You know, you heard about the famous thing of Naomi Campbell on the catwalk, even though I think she's reprimanded herself today. And in, back in those days, she used, to, she used to have fits when they had other black girls on the catwalk because she used to say no blacks because she wanted to be the main one because at that time she felt there was only space for one person at the top. And unfortunately, in America, it's even worse because the race thing, not even black alone, is so systemic in the system where they have things like even mortgages, you know, they don't give X amount of mortgages to black things. They have this thing called redlining, you know, where black people can't get certain socioeconomic help. And then, of course, we all know the issue where they send all these poor young black men to jail. I mean, yes, I do believe if you do the crime, you do the time. But sometimes in a place like America, money talks a lot because you get privileged white or any, it doesn't even matter, race, you know, that get away with this type of stuff. I mean, they'll send a young black guy to jail for having, you know, a joint, which in the UK, if you're caught with a joint, nothing will happen to you. People are in 25 years to life here for having a marijuana, you know, like, and marijuana now is legal in a lot of states. I'm not saying, you know, they should have, but, you know, we have to use our common sense when we're even throwing people in jail. Because another thing I have to say is when you affect one person, it affects their whole life. It affects their family. That could have been a guy that was bringing money to his family and now his wife doesn't have the money and she has to go and work and while she's working her daughter gets raped and or her son gets bullied or he gets shot this is happening in black communities and it's just so systemic where it's just like a domino effect one person goes down and the whole family starts crumbling so that said let's go into a few examples of this type of systemic racism that we know about and that is being in the papers recently, you know, everybody's talking about the Floyd case, but let's look at other cases, like things that have happened even in the UK, be it blatant racism or under the cover racism. And one of the things we want to talk about is, let's talk about Vogue, English Vogue. And <laughs> you know where I'm coming from. Yes, yes. I mean, before Vogue it's got its new editor-at-large, Edward Eninfo, who's from of Ghanaian origin, and he changed the construct and, you know, mm -hmm. the way the magazine worked. It was mm -hmm. a predominantly white-dominated publication. Mm -hmm. Of course, black models appeared in Vogue, but everybody that worked in the office was almost 99% white. It did not mm -hmm. even represent Indians. I mean, 
I don't know, Malaysians, there was no representation. So let's talk about that type of institutionalized racism. Yeah, it's funny that you should say that, Amanda, because I remember back in the days when they used to say that when they put somebody of a different race or a black person on the cover of a, of a, one of the, you know, well-known magazines such as Vogue's, we were speaking about that their sales would drop. So they would say that they, their sales would be affected by the fact that a black person or somebody of a different race were on their cover. So it just goes to show you, the, you know, the mindsets of the majority of people out there to the fact that having somebody, even just because they have slightly different, you know, pigmentation or, you know, that it would go to the extent of where people refuse to buy a magazine cover. Now, you know, it's true, Amanda. Um, I mean, Edward has come in, he has changed the face. And it's not just, we're not saying that he had to come in and make it, a, you know, he had to get rid of, of a predominantly white. What we're saying is that he's made it more multicultural. So you've got different types of people. So with that, the magazine can give you much more, you know, you, it can more people of, of different ethnic can relate because they're seeing different types of models, you know, or advertisements, which mean, you know, for a whole society to be able to see and understand. So it's, it's like you said, I mean, he really has changed the face and, you know, we, we're seeing a lot more diversity within the magazine. A question I want to ask is the situation with Harry and Meghan Markle, you know, and a lot of people are saying that had racist undercurrents. Sophia, what's your opinion on that? I was thrilled that Harry got to pick such a beautiful, beautiful bride. From the first moment that um, their engagement was announced, I was really thrilled. But then all the media and scrutinizing and all of that, I felt really sorry for her because I didn't understand why would the public be so mean and disgusting. And I tried to imagine who would actually say comments about Megan and make it so cruel towards her. Like I tried to imagine, like, because of the people that I'm surrounded by, like who would actually say some comments about her race? Because to me, all I could see was a beautiful, beautiful woman and successful actress. So I was like, Harry done really well. He's a handsome man. He's got this beautiful woman. And she was always very smart. Her speeches were great. So to me, I was like, well, you bagged a really beautiful girl and I'm, she's really thrilled to be with the prince. But then all the nastiness that was happening, I actually, as I said before, I actually do not understand the concept of racism. It is absolutely alien to me. Why would someone say nasty comments about someone like why would they be so critical about the fact that she was married before? But all I kept on thinking, yeah, is about his great, um, great uncle, I think King Edward, the one that married the American actress Wallace, right? He gave up the throne and everything for this woman that he loved. So his great, great uncle must have been very pleased in his grave, you know, that whatever happened with Harry and Meghan, I just, as I said, and I will repeat myself one more time, I do not understand the concept of why would people be so mean to someone, but I suppose in the UK and around the world, royalty is um, kind of like um, celebrity status. So they will be writing more and more about them and creating all sorts of scenarios to sell the papers, which kind of drove Diana 
to her early grave because of how they were chasing her down and everything. So as long as people are going to be buying crap like that, the newspapers are going to be creating stories. Yeah, but did you think there was some racist undercurrent? Betsy, back to you. Yes, I do. I think there was a huge racist undercurrent because they were openly and blatantly racist coming from the lords and ladies within their circles. And they made it very clear that she was unwanted and they refused to accept her. Now, I could imagine coming from, you know, royalty and the class system that having a so-called black woman within the family would be of a, a disservice because, you know, she would be lowering their class. She's tainted because for them having a so-called black person in the family, you know, one, it hasn't happened before. And two, you know, she's black. <laughs> I mean, there's not but much more know, to say. I do believe that um, part of this racism thing, like I said earlier, was because it was designed. Because when we look at the royal family way back before, there were black people in the royal family. The queen oh, actually had a that's little girl she had kind of adopted. You know what I mean? Yes. And, you know, maybe some of them were not blood, but there were people that, you know, they, they were very fond of and became very good friends with them, including That's... foreign dignitaries, including the ones they adopted, and then they sent to school, and then they helped them go back. And I feel like in the originally in the colonies, the British were a bit more, I would say, kinder. And they grew fond, you know, almost like, of some of the people they worked with, you know, racism as a construct became like, because when I look at it, you know, like I know people that went to Oxford from Africa in 1800, at the end of 1800, you know, and they were in Oxford. At that time, people, black people were not going to school here. You know, black people were not allowed into Harvard at that time. You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So I feel like the British system and a lot of the racism that's going on with Megan, I feel like when Meghan married into the royal family, obviously there is a lot of criticism that comes with that. So you have to be ready for that. But also I feel like she got a bigger end of the stick because of her race. Definitely. I can say that. Definitely because of her race. I think she was, they went down Vilified. Vilified. Yeah, she was vilified. Yeah. And mm -hmm. some people, as Betsy said, made it openly known, you know, they didn't care. So Betsy, whilst you're talking about that, one thing that made me remember was the modeling industry. So because when we started modeling, you know, which is about, you know, probably 20 years ago, it was a very different industry. That's right. Yeah. So enlighten me. Where do I begin? I mean, uh, I, I do remember when I start, first started modeling, um, I do remember definitely feeling like a subordinate. So for example, if we were shooting a commercial, I, okay, before even going to the commercial, let's start with even the hairdressers, for example. Now, we had hairdressers who would spend hours prepping all the other, you know, all the other models' hair and make, doing these uh, lovely intricate designs. And then they'll get to me and they'll be like, oh, no, I think you'll stay like that. But I've literally basically got out of bed, haven't really brushed my hair because I'm thinking I'm coming to a shoot where a stylist is going to star me up and make me feel beautiful. But that was never, ever the case. And I remember most of the time going on set with my hair, you know, in a wayward style. And then even when going on set, I remember that I'd always be pushed to the back. I would never be a lead. There was never a time where I got the opportunity to be a lead character in 
any advertising or commercial campaign. Well, now I can honestly say that things have changed and, you know, we're moving on. But initially when, when we began, you know, or as well, I also remember when we would do shoots, I was also made to look very tribal. The whole concept about being black was you had to look tribal. Maybe it had to do face paints. I remember doing a shoot where I had to have a bow and arrow. And I think that was the only way they could see me or depict it, you know, or that envisaged how I should be shot. I mean, you know, it was... I agree. Not say there's, there's anything wrong, but not say there's anything wrong with that, but that it was very one dimensional. I agree with you because I remember when I first started modeling, it was the same. You'd arrive for a shoot, you go to the makeup artist, either she wouldn't have the color of your foundation That's or she'll true, just yes. be like, <laughs> she'll spend 50 minutes on all the girls. And when it comes to you, she'll spend like 10 minutes and she'll go, Oh, you're done. She'll be like, You're done. The makeup's mm-hmm. done. She'd be like, you're over. And you're like, oh, you haven't even put makeup on my face. You haven't done anything. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, that's it. And then I also remember, like Betsy said, you go for a shoot. You were never the lead. You were always put at the back. Or you turn up for a casting and they'll say to the, oh, I told the agency not to send any black models. Why do they? And they would actually call the agency and complain that they send black models. And in today's world, they could not do that. They would not get away with that. That would be just racism right there. But in those days, clients would call the agencies and the agencies will send you out trying to get your work. And it was another thing, if you remember Betsy back then, mm-hmm. you know, my white friends used to have, cause we'll all go on castings together. That's white right, girls will yes. be getting five, six castings a day and you'll have one mm-hmm. or two because they'll say, oh, that one's not four. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, yes, it's true. Yes, I know that has changed a lot. But then I also remember when that changed. How did that change? That changed with Alec Weck. Yes, and I, it wasn't. It didn't change with Naomi. It changed with Alec Weck because mm-hmm. they found it as black as ever. You know, beautiful, obviously, and they just placed it in raw. You know, like mm-hmm. as if she just came out of the savannah. But that started changing the concept. And I remember when Alec came out, everybody wanted a girl that looked like Alec. That mm-hmm. actually, they didn't want, even if you were brown or anything, they didn't want to book you. You were either had to be mixed race or you had to be pitch black. Anything in between wasn't working at that point. So then, you know, and all of this are like forms of, you know, like little, little forms of racism, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Sophia, what's your experience also as a makeup artist with working with black models or working on shoots? Well, because I've worked for MAC Cosmetics for a long time, we've had the widest range of foundations. But I only joined MAC um, in 2013. So I joined the new era for, say, we've been taught on every, like to match every skin tone that there is. And I took my pride, my absolute pride in being able to cater to absolutely everyone that I came across in the store. And then when I started doing big photo shoots with Mac, I just loved working with different skin tones. And I've heard these horror stories from the models that they always had to carry their foundation with them to every single shoot that they've ever went to, just in case the makeup artists didn't have enough shades. And that's never been an issue for my personal makeup kit. Um, Betsy can tell you, I've done her makeup many times. 
I was about to say that I was about to say, you know, the thing is that if you have a real passion and a real desire for what you do and it comes from a pure heart like Sophia, she, you know, she, you, you embrace everybody. And I have to say, Sophia is an amazing makeup artist. So she's done my makeup and she's got my, you know, she's done it to the utmost perfection, pure. It was spot on. There were no issues. And, you know, I mean, you really are, you know, a skilled makeup artist. I, you know, I give it to you, Sophia. You've learned your craft well. I just feel like if you're an artist, any kind of artist, um, colors should never be an issue for you. Right, you should exactly. be able to create whatever canvas that you need. If the canvas in front of you has got a certain shade, you, with your skills, can mix up that shade for the model. But I do understand that back in the days, back in the 80s, perhaps, there was a limited amount of product that the makeup artist could actually mix to create a perfect shade. But Sophia, we're not talking about 80s. We're talking about 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, so now, people I, I, I think the mindset, well, I think it was people just not wanting to. They there was no bothered. desire. They couldn't be bothered. Whereas you, as I'm saying, you as an artist, you know, you embrace everybody. I mean, you know, it's something that you, you've wanted to do and skin color, skin tones was not an issue. So for example, I always, what I used to wonder is that when people are doing, choosing colors for their walls or, for, you know, for their homes, you match them up. You're able to, so it's the same with the skin tone. You know, I, I used to, I couldn't understand me being the complexion that I am, that they would put a gray toned foundation on my skin. I mean, where is it that you, where, you know, if you, if that's the job and the profession you choose, how do you not understand color palettes? Yeah. It makes balance, no sense to me. Balance out certain colors mm -hmm. and make other colors pop with the combination exactly. of the exactly. I must say in those days, they didn't have as much variety as they did now. Enough to work with. I yes, think. but also a lot of them were not trying hard mm, enough. And then also back in the days, they would hire, like you were saying, like the castings, the white girls would get more castings than um, black girls or mixed girls. In the times before the, even the supermodel times, the times that you guys were modeling at your peak, like those years, I feel like makeup artists, were so limited in their experience even with like different skin tones because they were so set in the idea of mixing just foundations and things like that for white girls or like yeah mediterranean girls and things like that yeah i feel like with me working with so many different races and so many different shades of skin i think that beauty comes in completely the, the biggest palette in the world that you can imagine mm -hmm. i find every skin shade appealing mm -hmm. like every skin shade to me is beautiful because the fact that someone's got a bit more melanin or like a slightly different tone or maybe pigmentation here and there i can fix everything to make it look great because i am so passionate about my craft that is always going to be my baby. Like makeup is always going to be my baby, but not to get sidetracked. Every skin shade to me is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. I like how you put that in the terms of art. So that said, yes. you know, why do we think people are racist? Because one thing I want to say is in today's world, everybody's educated on race. Everybody, there's so many TV shows there on race. If you want to go and find out about race history, there's so many books. You can go on the internet. 
but why are people still racist? We know we can do better. Why do we keep on allowing this to happen? Any views? I personally think it comes from lack of education of certain group of people that still pass it on to their children. It's necessary, whatever they grew up in, they pass it on their children and they're very narrow-minded and they're not trying to be more open-minded to understand that there is difference in different... Sophia, let me stop you there. It's up to their children though, because some of those children are adults now, to go and read and learn and watch. It's true, but people, ignorance is bliss to some people. Mm-hmm. That's people, very true. People like quite stuck in their um, white privileged lives and they kind of be like, okay, well, this doesn't include me, so I'm not being racist, but like, why don't I just live and like be the white person like I am with all the privileges? This has to change and now is the time because if you are not a racist it's not enough you have to be vocally non-racist you really like now is the time for everyone to say what they really think and to actually act on it it's not the time to be silent right now yeah it's good you said that because i was about to say that that, you know how do you hold friends accountable you know like and, you know, like, how do we hold friends accountable that are racist to any race, not just black, any race? I'll put them in their place for them, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, that the bottom line is, is, is education. Education is key. You know, you have to, I mean... But what I've noticed is that a lot of people tend to don't want to understand people's cultures. When you don't have an idea of how people think or the food they eat what their belief systems are, you know, you'll never have a, a true understanding of what they're about, or what they represent. And I think for what I've experienced in society today is a lot of people just don't want to, whether they, you know, and for whatever reason, you know, I, I mean, obviously we know like that. That's See, even though they don't want to know about the culture so much, it's still not an excuse of you for them to be racist. Oh, well, hundred percent. No, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I agree with, that. with you, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, like, yeah, mm-hmm. because you know, there's so many cultures I don't read about, but mm-hmm. I think we look at people as human beings first. First of and all, yeah, based them on character. You yes. know, I don't base anyone's my interaction with anyone. I don't base it on their color or mm-hmm. where they come from. I base it on who they are mm-hmm. and my experience with them. That's it, you know? Yes, no, I I agree with you, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot of people are racist because some people have fear. There's some fear in a lot of people. I also think racism is an egotistical thing because I know people that are not so-called racist, but they just love the fact that they feel superior to others. There are a lot of people like that because that's an innate human condition where we like superiority. Mm -hmm. And if I can say anything to make you feel lower... Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do it, even sometimes you're out or they do it very slightly or snarky, you know, just to kind of put you in your place. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's just to make themselves feel better, which is a very, very, it's not a healthy way to no, make yourself I th- feel better. I think we've touched upon, upon those things about self-love, you know, in other, you know, some of our yeah. discussions. So, I think, yeah. You know, yeah, but we have to discuss because now it, we're yes. discussing how the solutions are. And, yes, you know, that's right. it's not a... It's not a way, but I think a lot of it is ego. 
yes ego and people not wanting to listen but that said when Sophia was talking earlier and she was talking about her experience with racism because of where she comes from and like you know lack of being accessible to other races I do want to say something about that as well because what I found from traveling around Europe is that when you go to other places where they don't actually grow up with black people or something a lot of them are not that racist actually you know maybe they are inquisitive Yes, very true. You, know, mm-hmm. you might find one or two of people that are fascists, you know, but then you can find them anywhere in any culture, you know, but they are not racist. You know, I've been to Poland. I've been to Czechoslovakia. I've been to places that where people did not grow up with a lot of people of different color and they're kind of open. And a lot of them take their what they know about race from what they see on television. Yes. So they see glamorous black men and women in music videos or whatever and they you know some of them could come up to you and say oh Naomi Campbell or Beyonce or whatever which is to them is a compliment and you know sometimes you might feel like is Naomi Campbell the only black woman on earth but at least they come <laughs> with a compliment you know yes it's true a compliment and- to you both ladies because you look like supermodels but you know what I mean so it goes to say that probably racism is ingrained in a lot of these other societies because you find that places where they never have black people for a long time. Even I've been to countries where they'll have one black person in a village, right? And when that black family comes in, they'll all be inquisitive. And once they get to know that black family, they treat them like their own. That's true. You know yes. what I mean? Like they treat- well, I can tell you a story from my hometown A woman that was closer to age of my grandmother, she was a doctor and she went on a mission to Sudan and she met this man that she ended up marrying. She had two sons with him. They were both doctors and they were very, very like accepted. Obviously, he was a pediatrician, her husband. So when the kids would come to him, they would be a little bit scared because they he looked very different to the people that um, the kids were surrounded by. But this woman used to teach me religion because she was like a, like a very religious person. So she would come to my school and teach her religion. And I knew both of her sons, they were doctors, and I grew up with their children. We were very accepting of them. They, I, I don't ever remember them, the quarter caste kids that I grew up with I don't know if that was the right term to use sorry but like they were like quite a mixed um, children the one that I grew up with nobody has ever made them feel inadequate or made them feel like they're they're different we just knew that they had like a different shade skin but they were just equally Slovakian kids like I was and to us even if there was like a disabled person in my hometown and in my experience, I never seemed to have those feelings of like discrimination towards anyone. I only just remember one teacher of mine telling me about there was this disabled guy that used to go to school with me. He had some problem with his hands. And this teacher once said to us, well, would you want to have children with a guy like that? Um, what if the the syndrome, whatever he has, goes on to your children? And I remember that to this day because we always took him as one one of us. I've never okay. I've I've, I've noticed there was something wrong with his hands, but I never thought about anything else until an adult has um, put these things to brought these things to my attention. So I do believe what you were saying, Amanda. 
I don't think any one of us is born racist. Racism or looking different at different people with any kind of disabilities or differences is something that is taught to us by people that are older than us. I totally agree with you, Sophia, because I've also seen the same example even in the UK. I have a lot of friends that come from little villages like up north and stuff, and they'd say, when I was growing up, there was only one black family in our village from Africa, and they loved them. Like everybody got to know them. You know what I mean? They grew up with them and there was no issues. You know what I mean? They never had issues with that black family. They said, yeah, they were different, but we never had issues because in those places, you know, they were close, kind of almost like close to the outside world. You know, it was just the village. And everybody yes. said black family. It just shows yeah. that people are accepting of differences exactly. in a small, in a smaller kind of thing. And then I don't know when do they start feeling that they are whatever fear. I feel like racism comes with a bit of fear. Yes, but I also think that you know racism comes you know from all angles. So for you know through media, through the press. You know, we spoke about earlier on through magazines, not seeing representation. So I think these are all the things that kind of feed, you know, some people's idea, you know, ideas on racism. And I guess, you know, and as a part of its ignorance. But that said, you know, one question I want to ask here is how do we black, white, yellow, green or whatever contribute to racism ourselves? Because there's some innate underlying things that we all do sometimes that we're actually contributing to the problem and we don't realize it. One of the ways I would say that sometimes people contribute to racism and a lot of people do this is when they're sitting, like sometimes you're sitting with friends and they make a comment and they talk about somebody or they say, oh yeah, look at that woman's ass, it's so big. Oh, those black girls have such big asses. Or, you know, like they make a comment, which is not racist, but they're just, they've used the word black. They've used the word, you know, or they've said that Indians always stink of garlic. Why just not say that guy stinks of garlic? Once you start using the word Indian man stinks of garlic or or Pakis, I can't stand Pakis. You know, those are racist comments that happen every day that either we say or our friends say, and we sit there and allow them to happen rather than saying, listen, I understand the man that just walked past you stunk of garlic, but it has nothing to do with his race. You see where I'm coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do see where you're coming from. I think what we can do going forward or, um, well, obviously we cannot go backwards, but going forward is educate or children or any kind of relatives or somebody that you're close with that's a bit younger that that is not an acceptable way of describing people and be a little bit more aware of what kind of language we put out there as i do firmly believe our words carry such a strong power sometimes you might say words are like spells so if you keep saying these things, you kind of like put spells on people and then you put them in one category and then that kind of carries on with them, which is unwillingly you kind of like using magic and things like that. I don't know if you want to go deeper into this, but what I'm trying to say with this is it's important to educate people that are still learning about how to talk about certain things. And if, if you feel like somebody's out of line with saying, things and categorizing people in categories like based on their origin and stuff like that, that is not right to say that, especially in 
big cities like London, LA, New York, wherever you have a big concentration of different cultures, you really have to learn how to be a little bit more open-minded and just open to different cultures and embracing the difference in people because it's just a big melting pot of different cultures and we all come from a different background and we should just really start to honor and respect each other for um, who we are and where we come from and embrace all the differences. I think you're right. And we have to remember that we are all human beings. And at the end of the day, we all have the same ideals in life. We all want to be, you know, to grow up, to be happy, to love, to find life partners, to have children, to have, to find that successful job, to, you know, to all these things. We all have the same you know, we all come from the same backgrounds at the end of the day and we all have the same ideals in life. So what we must remember is unity and to let love be our guide and make sure that we, like Sophie said, we embrace one another, learn about each other's differences, learn about our cultures. And, you know, just because somebody has slightly different melanin in their skin tone does not make them an alien. We are all here part of this universe we spoke about this before that universe is one song it's it's we're here together we're here to thrive to build and basically we must continue our journey of love yes and you know there's a famous saying ignorance is bliss i think you know we must also keep on talking keep on protesting and keep on making our voice heard because Sometimes, even for me, I'm living in LA with the riots going on right now. You know, has it affected me? No. I'm sitting in my house. I'm watching it on TV. I have opinions about it. But is it affecting me directly? No. But I will and I am making my voice heard. You know, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. So it's very important for us to not get into the ignorance is bliss situation. Even if we're not black, if we're white or whatever, if you hear something that someone's saying, you have to be like, no, darling, you can't be saying that, you know, otherwise we can't be friends, you know, because, you know, that's not my point of view. And, you know, I don't want to put my point of view on you, but you have to be better than that. We all have to be better than that. But I also think the deeper problem lies in truth and reconciliation, which is what in South Africa after apartheid, you know, because after when Men Nelson Mandela, you know, was freed and he became, you know, the president or prime minister, I don't know if it's president or prime minister of South Africa, <laughs> president of South Africa, you know, Desmond Tutu had this thing called the Ru Truth and Reconciliation Committee where, you know, because otherwise South Africa would have ended up in disaster. People were so angry after apartheid, but sometimes which I think is what's not being done in America is people have to accept the past and they have to ask for forgiveness. And what truth and reconciliation does is, you know, America has to accept the past of slavery, the past of killing American Indians, the acknowledge. past acknowledge it, you know, and you have to also acknowledge it, but not just acknowledge it by putting a monument somewhere, but it has to be a discussion. You know, that's what it was in South Africa. So there's truth. And then there's reconciliation. So like, you know, you both say, this is what happened. You know, we're sorry. And that's what I find. I think in America, people are angry because I feel like a lot of, sorry to say this, white Americans feel almost as if 
like, yeah, you know, what happened was, you know, it happened, it was bad, but, you know, now we're here. And, you know, they just wash it under the carpet. And for the people that have been through this, then like, it's ruined my generation and mm -hmm. like five generations, you know? And they're like, it's more than that. So I think it's like, they always say the truth will set you free. Free, yes. And um, I think it's also for, you know, for society to recognize that it's not that we have a chip on, on our shoulder. This is something, you know, you know, and, and for all, all uh, cultures that this is, this is very real and it's, and it's still very current and it's still part of our lives. And, you know, the constant battle to having to deal with these issues, you know, there has to be a time, you know, that it stops. And like you said, Amanda, for truth and reconciliation and just, you know, the, you know, they always say the truth will set you free. And this is where we need to come to. It is a time for change and it must happen now. I think as we all can see, there's a lot going on. I hope that this will be the beginning of a brighter future for all of us. You know, a, one, a future that we live in harmony and, and in unity. We stand strong together. Sophia, any comments? Completely agree with Betsy. Absolutely. We really need to stand together. Um, no matter where we're from, no matter what skin tone we have, we really need to say right now, whatever's going on, we need to stop racism completely. We need to make that um, statement of saying that this is no longer acceptable, no longer acceptable, and we're not going to live in a world where um, one race would be superior to any other races. No, that's not that's not fair and it's not right because we all come in different shades and we're still human beings so we really need to start respecting each other because we're human and we have to coexist we're here together yeah we are we're here together Whew, girls <laughs> that was a really really interesting podcast this you know we the issue of racism i mean we can go on forever and ever and ever talking about this because it's one of those subjects that it just can go on forever. But we hope like our point of view has come across to all of you out there. And, you know, you see, when it comes to racism, it's we know it's a very complex subject, but I feel like it's, it's our responsibility, each one of us, to make sure that we read a lot about other cultures, learn about other cultures, and put it in our mind somewhere that, you know, we can be better than this. And racism has to come to an end because we have a lot more issues in the world that are more pressing, like global warming and just day-to-day -day living. So if, you know, when you're going around being prejudiced to other races, it, it doesn't build you. It actually breaks you, you know? We can work together and we can be in this together. And those are my parting comments. And thanks again for listening to the podcast. Till next time, I'm Amanda. And with Betsy and Sophia, we'd like to say, join us on Twitter and make any comments. I'd like to thank everybody that's tuning in to listen our podcast. Your support means a lot to us. And we do hope that we're bringing you topics that are interesting to you. And let us know on our Instagram and on our Facebook maybe if there's a topic that you would like us to discuss and we would be happy to bring you more more topics that are relevant and something that we all can um discuss together thank you and like i said um my my closing statement would be like i said before is let love be your guide thank you mm -hmm.